enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. It's been a few months now since I put an episode out, so I am abandoning my previous idea that I was working on and that I've alluded to on Twitter. I'm not permanently abandoning it, but it requires a certain amount of physics focus that I don't really have right now. I do still care a lot about space, though. A few of you are still keeping me in the loop about scientific advancements in astronomy, and I was very excited to hear about the new InSight probe landing on Mars at the end of November. That's a whole episode for sure. I'll be watching how that drilling into Mars' surface goes. I got very distracted the other night, though, during a conversation with a friend. I was thinking about how you could measure smell and went hunting for a quantified scale for such a thing. I was kind of shocked when it turns out no one's invented a smell scale. Not for perfumes, anyway. There are quite a few for stink smells, and one that measures how much onions and garlic hurt you, which is useful for a weepy person like me. It did get me thinking about the unusual ways we have tried to measure very specific data. I've talked about a few of the ways astronomers through the ages have tried to standardize the way we observe a star's brightness, for example, and create a correlation with identifying a star's magnitude. We have scales for the color and heat of stars as well. There are a ton of star scales, and I feel like I've talked about them a lot already, so I won't be going into detail about those. If you want a refresher about this, feel free to listen to episodes 5 and 6, which have stellar spectra classifications and variable star classifications, or episode 25, which addresses bare designations. This episode is going to get a little weirder. (laughs) We'll start with a couple more scientific scales, like the Bortle Scale, Palermo Technical Impact Hazard Scale, and Torino Scale. And then we'll move into the realm of science fiction and aliens with the Rio scale, San Marino scale, Kardashev scale, and Hynek scale. I did already address the Bortle scale in episode 17 when I talked about dark sky reserves, but it deserves a refresher because it really is quite unusual. John Bortle is an amateur astronomer, and in his own words from a 2006 article published in Sky and Telescope, he, quote, created a nine-level scale. It is based on nearly 50 years of observing experience. Should it come into wide use, it would provide a consistent standard for comparing observations with light pollution. The Bortle scale is an objective scale to measure the clarity and effect of light pollution on a night stargazing. It's used by comet and deep sky observers as a useful way to report on star observation conditions. Black and gray zones are the best for stargazing. Blue is for rural skies. Green and yellow are the rural suburban transition zone. Orange is the suburban sky. Red is bright suburbia. And white is for cities and inner cities. Observers use dim stars to define the night sky based on the Bortle scale. For example, the pinwheel galaxy is an object that's used to identify two of the best, darkest categories of sky, because it's so faint and hard to see. So, the Bortle scale has very practical uses in astronomy. 
It tells you the conditions of the sky when you want to observe stars by singling out light pollution as a major factor during observations. We're going to get less concrete now and talk about the Palermo Technical Impact Hazard Scale. The Palermo Scale enables scientists, I am placing emphasis on scientists for reasons that will become clear in a few minutes, scientists to categorize and prioritize the potential impact risks of objects in space, like asteroids. These risks span a wide range of impact dates, energies, and probabilities, and the Palermo Scale operates using numbers, not the blue-gray-green of the Bortle Scale. Actual scale values less than negative 2 reflect events for which there are no likely consequences. Values between negative 2 and 0 require careful monitoring. Potential impacts with positive values on the Palermo scale indicate situations that merit concern. The scale compares the likelihood of potential impact with the average risk posed by objects of the same size or larger over the years until the date of the potential impact. This average risk from random impacts is known as the background risk. Here's where it gets mathy. The Palermo scale is logarithmic. If it's been a few years since you dealt with logarithms, don't worry, it's been a while for me too. I'll try to give a quick review. Logarithms are the inverse of exponents. This means the logarithm of a given number x is the exponent to which another fixed number, the base b, must be raised to to produce the number x. Another way of saying this is the log of x to base b equals y. This is the same as saying b to the exponent y equals x. What that means for the logarithmic Palermo scale is that it increases exponentially. If you graph it, it shoots sideways instead of up, but it is still increasing at a very rapid rate. For example, a Palermo scale value of negative 2 means that the detected potential impact event for an object is only 1% as likely as a random background impact occurring in the intervening years. A Palermo scale value of 0 means that the detected potential impact event for an object is just as threatening as the background risk. A value of plus 2 means an event is 100 times more likely than a background impact by an object at least as large before the date of the potential impact in question. I'll put the actual equations used to determine background risk and an object's Palermo scale value in the show notes on the website. That can be found at, all one word, fill the void dash with dash space dot tumblr dot com. I'd like to mention where each of these scales got their names, because I think the people who come up with them are interesting. But in the case of the Palermo scale, I couldn't find a reason for the name. Based on an associated scale, though, I hypothesize that the scale was presented at some sort of astronomy meeting in the city of Palermo, which is located in Sicily. The scale associated with the Palermo scale is the Torino scale, which was created by Professor Richard Binzel from the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT. He presented the first version in 1995 as a Near-Earth Object Hazard Index and presented a revised version in 1999 at a conference held in Torino, Italy. The scale was adopted and given the name of the Torino scale as a symbol of international collaboration on the project. While the Palermo scale is used for scientists to track, identify, and quantify object collision risks, the Torino scale communicates the risk associated with a particular asteroid or comet to the public. This scale runs from 0 to 10 and takes into consideration the predicted impact energy of the event and the likelihood of it actually happening. 
Because there have been exaggerated doomsday levels of press coverage for asteroids labeled level one on the Torino scale, the scale was updated in 2005 to add more details and rename the categories so they were less uh, misleading. Specifically, level one was changed from events meriting careful monitoring to normal. (laughs) The reason for the two scales lies in the Palermo scale's ability to assess the risk posed by less threatening events that rank as zero on the Torino scale because the Palermo scale runs into negative numbers. Torino scale zero events make up almost all of the potential impacts that we have detected to date. So the Palermo scale really just helps scientists categorize asteroid impact events, which probably will not happen, but should still be monitored. The Torino scale has also served as a model for the Rio scale. And at this point, we will move out of the hard science scales and into some of the more interesting, speculative, alien life assessing scales. This is because the Rio scale quantifies the validity and social impact of SETI data. SETI is an acronym for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, S-E-T-I. They have meetings and conferences and everything, which makes me very happy. You don't have to believe in aliens to listen to my podcast, but I think it helps. To me, it really comes down to the law of large numbers. I'm not the only one to think that the odds of alien life are more likely than the odds of an empty universe. Astronomer and astrophysicist Frank Drake came up with an equation, which is called the Drake Equation, as a way to start a dialogue about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. The Drake Equation uses several variables to estimate the number of potential active, communicative civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy, based on the average rate of star formation in our galaxy, the fraction of those stars that have planets, the average number of planets that can potentially support life per star with its own orbiting planets, the fraction of planets that could support life, which actually develop life at some point, the fraction of planets with life that actually go on to develop intelligent life and civilizations, the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that releases detectable signs of their existence into space, and the length of time it would take those civilizations to release detectable signals into space. Multiply all those factors together and you get N, the number of civilizations in our galaxy with which communication might be possible. It's not a low number, no matter how conservative you are with the fractions. There are a lot of stars in the Milky Way. (laughs) Drake wasn't saying this is how many alien civilizations we can expect to encounter, but constructing the equation was a quick way to begin talking about all the factors that make life possible, and how many opportunities there might be for sentient, advanced life and culture to develop. He came up with the equation as part of an agenda to talk about extraterrestrial intelligence possibilities, and it has become a cornerstone for the SETI debate. Anyway, the International Academy of Astronautics has a long-standing SETI permanent study group. This group addresses matters of science, technology, and international policy around the search for extraterrestrial life. They meet with the International Aeronautical Congress on an annual basis in conferences held around the world. In October 2000, the astronomers Ivan Alomar and Jill Tartar presented a paper to the SETI Permanent Study Group in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, which proposed a scale that they modeled based on the Torino scale. This scale, called the Rio scale, runs from 0 to 10 and quantifies the impact of any public announcement regarding evidence for extraterrestrial intelligence. 0 means no impact, 1 is insignificant, 2 is low importance, 3 is minor impact, And then it runs to moderate importance, medium importance, intermediate, noteworthy, high, far-reaching impact, outstanding, and 10 is extraordinary. 
It was modified this year, in 2018, but there are people who disagree with its method of quantifying alien communications detection in terms of both its potential societal impact and the credibility of the evidence that can be presented. Some people think that the general public might not be informed if extraterrestrial life is confirmed, while others believe such information would have consequences for the world's religions, just like the movie Contact addressed. Related to the Rio scale is the San Marino scale, first proposed in 2005 and also a work in progress. The origins of the San Marino scale lie in METI, which is the program called Messaging to Extraterrestrial Intelligence. It's not totally accepted in the SETI community. Some people think that it's inevitable, and looking for a signal of alien life also means sending signals of our own. Other people involved in SETI think it's dangerous to send signals into the void without knowing what will come of it. The San Marino scale emerged as a way to quantify the impact of sending transmissions from Earth. Once again, our friend Professor Alomar was the first to propose the San Marino scale in a paper called Quantifying Consequences Through Scales, which he presented in the Republic of San Marino at a symposium in 2005. The San Marino scale follows roughly the same scaling system as the Rio scale, but it runs from 1 to 10 instead of 0 to 10, and it seeks to provide some standard metric for the potential exposure of Earth and Earth's inhabitants as we use electromagnetic communication technology to beam out messages, or if we reply to a successfully received alien transmission. 1 is insignificant, 2 is low impact, 3 is minor impact, and then it runs to moderate, intermediate, noteworthy, high, far-reaching impact, outstanding, and 10 is extraordinary. It is again looking at social impact of transmitting messages from Earth into space to make contact with alien life. Quantifying social impact seems like a very difficult task, to me at least, especially when it's speculative. I don't know how widely acknowledged the Rio and San Marino scales are, or how useful they would be in addressing information's riskiness. There's another scale that seeks to quantify society, but in relation to space travel rather than space communication. The Kardashev scale measures how advanced a civilization's technology is based on their mastery of resources. Russian cosmonaut Nikolai Kardashev proposed the scale in 1964 as a way to put a civilization's energy consumption into a cosmic-level perspective. In 1963, Kardashev examined a quasar CTA-102 as part of the first Soviet efforts into SETI research. His work led him to the idea that extraterrestrial civilizations might be millions or billions of years ahead of Earth's own civilization— and he created his scale as a way to rank these alien civilizations, as well as tracking our own progress as a civilization. I don't completely agree with the method he used to classify civilizations, as I think he picked a simplistic way of assessing how advanced a civilization is, but I do have to admit it's a clearly quantifiable way of seeing where a civilization is on the cosmic scale. In the initial scale, Kardashev defined three levels of civilizations based on their energy consumption and their degree of space colonization. Type 1 civilizations have achieved mastery over the resources of their own planet, which can be more concretely defined by, quote, energy consumption at roughly 4 times 10 to the 19 ergs per second, or 4 times 10 to the 12 watts. Type 2 civilizations have achieved mastery of their solar systems and can harness the energy from their own stars. Type 3 civilizations can master the energy in their own galaxies. 
Kardashev revised his scale to break down the energy consumption values into the hundredths places, because the original draft of the scale had energy consumptions that ranged widely from each other. As of 2010, the human civilization is about 0.72 on the Kardashev scale. Projections suggest we will reach type 1 by 2100, type 2 by 3100, and type 3 status in between 100,000 and 1 million years. Again, I don't love how this is all focused on mastery of resources. Super hate it. The testament of a civilization's advancement shouldn't be based on resources, but on their interactions with the known universe, from new galaxies to new life. I like the Star Trek approach a lot, where you go scout out a new civilization and learn from it. How much energy you can generate exploiting your corner of the world is way less interesting to me. Speaking of Star Trek, science fiction writers have speculated about even more expanded types of civilizations on the Kardashev scale. They have proposed Type 4, which would be civilizations that have mastered resources in their universe, and Type 5, civilizations that have mastered resources in all universes. We'll skim pretty close to science fiction again with this final scale I'm going to talk about. Just as a heads up, I will be talking about aliens. You could skip ahead to the recap in like four minutes if you don't want to hear about this one. I saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind surprisingly late in life, considering I'm someone who watched all of the X-Files, but I have seen it, and I did not question its name. I should have. That's how all of my best podcast ideas have emerged, realizing I've been taking something at face value and not thinking about it, and then deciding to research it so I know what the hell it is. So, in UFOlogy... A close encounter is a person's experience with unidentified flying objects. Astronomer and UFO researcher J. Allen Hynek first suggested a way to quantify these encounters on a scale in his 1972 book, The UFO Experience, A Scientific Inquiry, and it is called the Hynek Scale as a result of his work, though he initially only proposed three of the seven encounters. Hynek believed the three encounters in his scale could be supported using scientific rigor and clarified that he was speaking of encounters within 500 feet of the witness. Sightings over 500 feet from the witness are designated daylight discs, nocturnal lights, or radar slash visual reports, depending on what type of unidentified object the witness receives. Hynek and his colleagues and fellow UFOologists argued that in order to designate something as a close encounter, it must be in close enough proximity to the witness that you could eliminate, or at least reduce, the chance that you're just misidentifying conventional aircraft or something. It's called a close encounter for a reason. <laughs> the Hynek scale did become more widely known when it informed the 1977 movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I can't quite recall how the movie ends, except with a fun music and lights show, but I can picture some backlit creature descending the gangplank of the alien ship, so maybe it really was a third encounter. I should address the encounter types. Encounters of the first kind are human encounters with aerial objects less than 500 feet away that display some attribute or attributes that are not considered possible by current human technology. Encounters of the second kind leave behind some physical evidence, such as burned ground, heat, radiation, freaked out animals, or an interruption of radio or mechanical equipment. This happens in the first episode of X-Files, for reference. The car stalls out on the stretch of road, and there's radiation, lost time, and radio waves scrambled. Encounters of the third, most famous and movie-worthy kind, are when witnesses observe what Hynek calls animate beings in conjunction with a UFO sighting. 
Hynek kept his terminology around the beings vague so he could reduce the assumptions regarding the beings' origins or nature. Hynek probably wouldn't have appreciated the next four levels added to the Hynek scale, as he was already uncomfortable with encounters of the third kind, and just included them as part of his scientific obligation. A sizable minority of claimed UFO encounters are of the third kind, and leaving them off would have reduced the usefulness of his scale. The four additional encounter types can't be examined using the scientific method, but they are forward-looking and, in some cases, more inclusive of claimed UFO experiences. Close encounters of the fourth kind are human abduction by UFOs. Close encounters of the fifth kind are human-initiated contact with aliens, and I think The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell would fall into this category. Sorry for any spoilers, but that book would also fall into the category of a close encounter of the sixth kind, death or injury caused by contact with aliens. The final Hynek scale category, a close encounter of the seventh kind, would be humans and aliens mating and creating a human-alien hybrid. The last one I kind of object to as well. That's the pinnacle of the scale. I guess it could imply some kind of collaboration is in effect and at that point, but dang, there are more ways to suggest human-alien collaboration than producing a hybrid offspring. Incidentally, the example I can think of for close encounters of the seventh kind is in the comic Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis, which has an alien genome as an available option for humans, even the aliens themselves are extinct. There are some wacky wild scales out there. <laughs> I did stick to astronomical ones like the Bortle, Paloma, and Torino scales. I couldn't help branching off into the more speculative scales like the Rio, San Marino, Kardashev, and Hynak scales. It's just so interesting how people choose to classify experiences, classifying the unclassifiable, standardizing the strange and obscure. It's definitely a conversation starter. I hope you'll have some weird content to bring up at any upcoming holiday parties. For the next episode, I was working on an explanation of the Coriolis force that I stalled out on for a few months, but I should have some more free time to work on it during the holidays. I could also talk about Stephen Hawking or famous comets. Either way, I'm calling it and saying this is the last episode of 2018. Thank you so much for sticking with me or for just picking this podcast up. I'll keep thinking about space podcast episodes, and I have a lot of ideas to go, so hopefully I'll be able to find more time in 2019 to research all my additional ideas. You can also suggest some ideas by sending an ask to my Tumblr or tweeting at me on Twitter at HD in the Void, all one word. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you won't miss any new episodes when I'm able to create them. It would also be awesome if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review the podcast there as well. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it decks my halls. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to decorate your halls as well. You can find my sources for this episode, music credits, a vocab list, and the episode transcript at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off. (laughs) 